Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it's a pleasure to welcome her to the show, Professor Jennifer Davidson. She is the Executive Director of the Institute for Inspiring Children's Futures at the University of Strathclyde. And today we're going to be talking about children's rights and children's life outcomes and how the latest research can be translated in a way that will enable policymakers to understand it, it will enable policymakers to act on it, and ultimately it will improve children's lives across the world. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led to The Economist calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. So without further ado, Professor Jennifer Davidson, Executive Director of the Institute for Inspiring Children's Futures, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Alberto. Excellent. So you're joining us from Scotland, and I'm down here in in London. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the Institute itself? What What's it all about? Thanks, Alberto. So the Institute for Inspiring Children's Futures is um, a mission-driven organization. We're not pro- not-for-profit initiative, and we're based at the university. But though we're based at the university, we are very externally focused, globally um, oriented, and um, looking to link the world of research into the real world of application of the research to make better policies and help support change happening for children. And um, we have a collective vision. We want to see children and young people around the world to make sure that they have what they need to reach their potential. And we're really interested in um, children who are facing adversity. So this is not the sort of just the um, sort of universal policies and practices we're, we're interested in. We're interested in how can those children who aren't reached by some of the really um, sort of fundamental social practices, how do we address the circumstances that those children are experiencing and how do we improve their circumstances? Mm-hmm. Are you looking at children across the globe or are you focusing on the UK? We're quite a new institute. So we're just emerging in how we're working and we're work- we are working around the globe um, at a national level and an international level. So we're not working at a local level in any country. Our interest is in helping to facilitate change at national government level and between governments to ensure that they have the evidence that they need and also they have the the, the political will is strengthened so that um, change for children can be maximized really within the parameters of people's influence. A lot of policymakers, um, a lot of politicians, they will very much say, yes, I'm all in favor of early childhood development or early childhood education or children's rights and so forth. But they themselves are not necessarily practitioners in the field. They may not be as well versed in the space as you are. Um, 
tell me a little bit about informing these policymakers and these uh, these politicians uh, with the latest research, so that when it's time to vote, they actually vote in a manner that would be conducive to improving children's lives. I think there's a translation piece of work that is sometimes left out of an equation, and so um, our interest is in making the evidence accessible. So I think there's something about language and how we speak to policymakers that helps. Um, helps that can help them to understand the evidence, but there's also language that can just completely isolate them or tune them right out the moment we start to talk about evidence. And so with politicians, I think that our, our keen interest is making sure that we're starting from what their uh, area of focus is, what's their interest. Their interest isn't necessarily the moral um, you know, imperative to make sure children are safe and protected. Um, they might have other uh, you know, of course, they have other agendas, and they're, you know, this is such a complex world that um, that we're living in. They've they've got multiple priorities they're having to juggle all the time. So our challenge, I think, is to find a way to speak to policymakers and politicians in ways that um, start with where they're starting from and help them to understand what the incentive is for them in prioritizing children in the range of different priorities that they have. Is it difficult to engage with politicians and policymakers? Is it difficult to get through the door, to get them to hear you out? Well, I suppose the thing to say about um, Inspiring Children's Futures is that we work in partnership with a whole range of other organizations. We're, we're a small team and we engage with a huge range of different partners for different projects at different times. And so it's the partners really who have the links into the different um, agencies and different um governments. And so I think that's part, that's maybe the starting point is to say that's how we work is in partnership with a whole range of, of, of folk. And, um, you, you know, from our most recent project uh, has been with the OECD and with UN bodies, as well as with international um, NGOs who are delivery agencies, as well as international um, capacity building sort of workforce oriented um, networks. And so our interest is really bringing a broad range of uh, actors together to understand better how do we align policy to be aligned with systems and ultimately to be aligned with practice because what we know from the research is that unless we've got this alignment between what we're doing at practice level what the systems are designed to create and how the policies can create the the framework for those to be maintained unless we have all three of those working and you know towards the same outcome for children the the ultimately the the investment the public investment will fail or won't be sustained. I shouldn't say it will fail, but it won't be as, as sustainable as um, the alignment between each level and the outcome we're seeking. Got you, got you. And indeed, if you if you are collaborating with the OECD, then obviously having an inroad into policymakers and governments will be fairly straightforward to do. The children's research that you're analyzing and trying to translate, as it were, into into a language perhaps or a framing that's much more digestible uh, by by the policymaker out there. Um, are you focusing on specific research regarding children? Give us a little bit of an insight into what sort of aspect of a child's life it is that you're looking into. Yeah, so we are we're interested in um, children who come into contact with justice systems. That's one of our projects, and we're working closely with them. Um, uh, the Pathfinders for Peace, Just and Inclusive Societies, which is a, an organization of, I think, 39 national um, governments and other UN groups who are collectively working towards achieving SDG 16. And um, so I lead the project on justice for children, and we're interested in thinking 
carefully with others about um, two things. One is how do we reorient our systems to be more people-centered rather than sort of driven just by the way the system has always worked. Um, and the other is thinking about what are the examples of positive change that we can draw on and share with others to inspire different ways of working in relation to justice actors. You had um, an interviewee a few weeks ago, I think Cameron McCollum, mm -hmm. uh, it was great to hear that podcast. And he was telling such compelling stories of young people who were really languishing in detention, had no access to justice, no access to any kind of um, defense. This is, a, this is a story that is a global story, really. It's not... Um, it's tragic and it's not um, it's not limited to just a few countries. This is what happens for young people in many, many countries, that they are in detention on remand without even having been charged for really the, the you know, a, a proportion of their life, which is enormous compared to how long, they've, you know, a couple of years for a 14-year-old is, you know, an enormous proportion of their life and their life development. And it has long-term consequences. And so I think Cameron did a beautiful job of describing some of the examples that, that were um, really compelling. And I think that's a, an example of the kinds of uh, system-oriented approaches to justice, which is this is the detention. We put people in it until we have a court case, and then we might have a court case five years later or one year later, and, um, and that child hasn't had a chance to defend themselves. That's a system-driven you know, approach to justice. What we're looking for is what, a people-centered approach to justice that starts with what do people need? What is it, in what way can they access justice? And in what way can we realize justice for a whole country by ensuring that the systems that are um, seeking to uphold justice are uh, facilitating access to justice? So I don't mean just, um, I'm, not, I'm not thinking just about, you know, legal defense. We're interested in a much wider range of ways in which children can experience justice. So in what ways do public services help to support children and their families before children might become in conflict with the law, for example? What are the ways in which, like in what, in what ways does education contribute to supporting children to, um, to enable them to grow and flourish and not be engaged with um, criminal activity or gang activity or, or um, organize some other sort of organized um, activity that, that's that's going to be harmful to them. So we're interested in a much wider definition of justice. And um, with the Pathfinders work, there's been a, a lot of attention being paid to some great examples of good practice, socio-legal centers that um, are being led in Sierra Leone and Palestine, where children have not just access to um, legal defense, but also they have access to um, support and uh, engagement back into their communities where they can be supported and, and can thrive. So we're interested in ensuring that the positive stories of change can be understood and can inspire other uh, country policy development to see what is possible and to make sure that we are learning from each other. Fascinating, really fascinating. Where are the biggest gaps? Where are the biggest gaps between what the latest research is telling you should be happening and what the actual reality on the ground is looking like today? Are there any areas that when you're thinking about engaging with policymakers, these are the two or three or four key areas we need to really drill into? It's hard to speak about the globe in that, in that way. I think it, it will be varied between countries um, and between regions in terms of what are the key areas. But I would say from a, if I'm contrasting sort of broad brush stereotypical sort of global north countries versus global south. So forgive me, because obviously there's very many differences even within any of those sort of groupings. But, um, you know, in the global north, we have um, approaches to 
child protection systems and systems for alternative care for children if they can't live in their parents' families, where in the family with their parents, where you know, what do we do for them? What do we support for them? And you know, in over the last I would say four or five decades in, in the global north, we've created these incredible systems that are have you know the best intentions to protect children from their families, and we create these you know um, benefits to children and 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 the families to make sure that these systems are able to protect their human rights. Actually, we sort of become quite cold and clinical, and we are are just learning and hearing from people with lived experience more recently that. Um, that we need to go back to basics and remember that children just the pil- children need some some love and that we can't create a sterile system that doesn't love them and if this, the protections that we've created by these systems actually have removed any sense of belonging and love for those children we're doing harm and so the global north is i think coming to terms with this development of the um of the almost over systematizing of the care for them and what we're learning from the global south is that there are um while they're developing protection systems that are better able to attend to children who are at risk of violence, we also have so much to learn from them about the valuing of kinship care and the wider extended family and the ways in which children are cared for by a whole range of different family members if a parent is unable to care for them. And this, interestingly, some some of those lessons from the Global South are just now coming into the Global North to remind us of what's possible, that if children need love and belonging, then let's look to their closest kin before we start putting them into foster care that um, where they won't have a sense of lifelong belonging. So I, I suppose I, that's not really answering your question, but where are the gaps? I think what I want to s- speak to is where are the opportunities for learning across different parts of the world? Um, and those gaps exist differently. So the gaps sometimes in the global north is that we've over-bureaucratized some of our systems at the cost of ultimately what we had wanted to achieve for children. And in the global south, there is still more to be done around more rigorous protection of children and especially from protection of children from violence, for example. And there's lots of great stories about how that's being taken forward. And maybe one other thought about that um, question about gaps. I think we, um, we're really good at rhetoric, aren't we? So I don't think we recognize the extent to which some of the very fundamental realities of poverty for children have such lifelong impacts on their education, on their their development. Um, you'll know about this from early early childhood work. And so I can't speak to where things have been taken on board properly and effectively, but I would say even where we are talking about addressing children's poverty, these are such complex issues that need to be addressed. They're very difficult to address and require a whole of government approach to be able to shift and make the changes happen. And so the gap, I would say, if I can sort of take your question and run with it a little bit further, I think the gaps are um, related to how we're trying to do things that that there's gaps everywhere and there's strengths everywhere but actually the gaps become the sort of siloed siloed ways in which we are taking forward the different kinds of work that we're trying to uh, to, to do and if if the children's directorate is the only place where we're really thinking about children in a, in a whole of government and when you know the economic economics directorate's not thinking about that then you know we need to make sure that the Cross understanding all across the policymaking that affects children is united and coherent and understands what the outcomes are that we're trying to achieve. And I think there's a long way to go specifically around that area, which is part of the work of the Institute. Mm. And what's the nitty gritty actually look like? So you're identifying that there's a need, and the research says one thing, the reality on the ground might be quite different. 
what's it mean to actually translate the science or the latest research into actionable information, digestible information that somebody can grab onto and not fall asleep and actually understand everything that they're reading? What's that entail? Lots of different things. So I can't give you a two-pager. Here's a policy brief on what you ought to do with this thing. Um, I think the evidence can tell us about some really, you know, some of the fundamentals about early childhood, for example, and, and other speakers have come on uh, to speak about this. I, you had another speaker, Mary Abdo, from the Center for Evidence and Innovation, and I think she was able to articulate really beautifully the sort of effective implementation of the change that we're looking for. And there's a, an organization called NERN, um, the National Implementation Research Network from the US. They, they have a what they call a formula for success. And um, they have, uh, there are three factors. One is making sure you have the effective interventions that you need. So do you know actually what will help to make that change happen? The second is effective implementation practices. So do you have the sort of infrastructure in place to make sure that the interventions you're applying, like how a health visitor might help to support um, a young mother with her baby? Do you know, we might know that that health visiting is really important and it looks like this when it's being done well, but then do we have the systematic infrastructure to make sure that happens every time a health or home visitors and you know visiting a, a, a parent but then the third is the enabling context so have we got this enabling framework do we have the political will to sustain that kind of practice and do we know that it will be prioritized in the face of many many other demands on an economic you know on, on the budget next year for example and um this formula formula for success talks about um these three factors being all being essential and they're factors. So, of course, if there's zero in any fact, you know, if you're multiplication, you're going to get, you're not going to get the outcomes you're looking for. So, if we're looking for significant, socially significant outcomes, we're going to need all three of those things. And so, there's the evidence on the interventions, and that's really important. There's evidence on implementation, which is just quite, it, it's maybe, I want to say cutting edge, but, you know, it's probably just the last six or seven years that we've really begun to understand there are ways we can speed up the process of taking good evidence and making sure that it's systematically applied and scalable. What I think we have less knowledge about is how do we create the enabling context to sustain those interventions and that implementation? And I think under COVID, we're probably facing an even greater challenge because there are so many many demands on the uh, financial circuit you know the, the financials of any country now and in the coming several years that um, we're going to have to argue it the case even even more effectively for a focus on children on children's well-being on children's outcomes and on the interventions that they need um, and we're going to need to convince people that it has there's an economic benefit to prioritizing children otherwise my fear is that we're not going to get where we need to get to for children for mm. some time Indeed, you mentioned Mary Abda. Uh, one of the things she highlighted was that time lag of almost two decades between when something, an intervention might, uh, you know, the research might say you should do this and actually hitting the front lines. Yeah. 17 yeah. years, 20 years, you know. 17, something. yeah. Yeah. Aspirin, I think. That's the example of aspirin. Um, yeah, it took that long for, re for, for physicians to regularly prescribe aspirin for something that's 17 years. So again, you, you, you highlighted that some things are a little bit more established and have been going on for a long time, others are a bit newer. Um, would you say that this is a new field that you're sort of, I don't know if I'd say trailblazing into, but uh, this whole notion of translating the science for a lay audience. I know uh, 
Jack Shonkoff at Harvard Center on the Developing Child. They do a lot of this sort of translating the science uh, into practical information that can be actioned. Also, the terminology that comes around, whether, for instance, take uh, toxic stress uh, and brain architecture when talking about early childhood development. Again, wording, and I've had uh, somebody who you know, from the Frameworks Institute who, who was working with Harvard on exactly that, you know, the, the wording that will compel somebody to take action, the uh, pulls on the heartstrings. Uh, so it's the same research underpinning it, but how you position it, how you frame it, how you communicate it. And I find it fascinating. And my question and my curiosity is, is, is this a new field? Is this a growing field that's looking at established research looking at the reality on the ground and how can how can we bridge that gap so that the research doesn't just stay on file or in an academic journal but actually it's embraced wholeheartedly um i don't think it's well known maybe that's that's the issue and i, I think there's some centers that are, you know like obviously harvest harvard center for the developing child that has established itself so beautifully in translating that information in 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 different ways i think what feels new to me in thinking about the shaping that enabling context and building the political will and translating the evidence to that, um, to those actors. I think what feels new to me is the bringing together across de different disciplines, the same argument. And, and um, so what do economists need to know about this? What to, um, you know, if we're thinking about children's outcomes, what's the, what, what do transport what does the transport minister need to know about what about children in order to be able to ensure that transportation is effective? For example, so how are we bringing together the many different interests to focus them on outcomes for children? So we've got the obviously the decisions about the economics, the budgets, and where they're where they're allocated. But we've also got some of the more um, you use the phrase at another time, Alberto, unconventional stakeholders or what, what um, or the unusual suspects. Do you know the transport minister is the person who is needing to think about the ways in which um, young parents have transport access for their jobs so that they're not taking forever to get to and from their work and leaving their children without care. I mean, these are some examples of how are we thinking about the economy? How are we thinking about um, businesses? How are we thinking about transport? How are we thinking about all the things that, that all influence children's lives? And to me, that's, that feels like those are, these are the enabling contexts that, that um, Inspiring Children's Futures is interested in influencing and in thinking about what's the evidence that each of these different players need to have. And it'll be different evidence because they're starting from such a different place. But all of these players need to be aligned if we're really going to help to support families to raise children in, way, in the best possible way. Mm. The the center itself at Strathclyde, why at Strathclyde? Well, I, that's so funny you ask. I think um, Strathclyde's for this university that gets on and does things. We've established a center for sustainable development and Inspiring Children's Futures is, um, is a close partner, working partner with them. Um, we've been, I think in the latest rankings, we're something like the 3% of the top global higher education institutions in terms of the extent to which we're working towards the SDGs. And we are the top in Scotland in, in that respect. And your background, so I think you're you're also a little bit representative of this in terms of um, what well, we you, you use the word unconventional stakeholders, but your background isn't straightforward academic. That's right. No, absolutely. 
I'm a, pre I'm a professor of practice. I'm really interested in how we make research really accessible to people, but also how do we make it um, useful? Do you know, how do we make sure that what we're researching has value to the people, you know, that, that, that we're, first of all, that we're actually researching about? How do we make sure children are going to benefit from research about children? And how do we ensure that those who have influence around those children's lives are able to use that information? So, yes, I'm, I've come from um, practice from working with children and then working in workforce development and then working in systems change, leading, uh, founding and leading some organizations. And, um, and I sort of feel like I've taken the, the, um, the university has supported me to really think differently about, right, what do we do next about um, taking that evidence and making it real? Strathclyde University was the, that our, our vice chancellor loves to remind us that we're, we're the only university in Scotland that was established during the Enlightenment, and that uh, that's a really significant part of who we are. And our uh, founder uh, that uh, that founded Strathclyde was very committed to being a what's called a place of useful learning. And so all this that's sort of that's the ethos of Strathclyde. It's the ethos of of um, of who I am because of you know actually I think probably because of the children and young people that I worked with from you know in you know in my early career they just um their stories and their personalities and their strengths but also the barriers they hit against time and time again and that you could tell their their families were hitting up against these were things that you know that have always stayed with me and I think drive my work mm. now you're originally from Canada I am you don't sound like you're from Strathclyde I do not know. I don't. I don't. Actually, my family is from 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 the UK, so I'm sort of first generation Canadian who's come. I've I've done the big homecoming to uh, back to Scotland, but um, no, yeah, I, you, I'm. You, you don't sound like you're from Scotland, and uh, give us a little bit of an insight into into your trajectory. So I, I think I always live sort of in these in between spaces, which is a little bit reflective of how I lead inspiring children's futures and my work. So the in-between spaces is, you know, I'm first generation Canadian. My parents were from the UK. Um, I was born in Montreal. So I say I'm Quebecoise, but I'm not, you know, French, I'm not first, um, French isn't my first language. So I'm sort of Quebecoise, but not quite. So I was born in Montreal. And um, so, I, but in my, it, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I went to, I moved to Vancouver for some adventure and, uh, and spent a decade there working and um, just being incredibly I just it was such a learning experience. I worked closely with um, many Indigenous young people. I worked with not you know some young people who who weren't Indigenous but um, were struggling with alcohol and drug um, problems in their lives. And um, so I had you know I was really shaped by what their experiences were. And uh, and that I think I think that really set me on a trajectory of wanting to make things right and make you know sort of adjust make you know ensure that they can experience of justice in, in their lives and healing in their lives. And so I actually moved from there to, um, uh, for personal reasons, moved to Texas for about four years, which is a completely different world um, from Canada and Scotland. And so that was a great learning experience. And my work was specifically trying to shape the, um, the, the workforces that are working with, um, with children. And um, so I worked at the, with protective services professionals, so Children's Protective Services and Adult Protective Services, helping to translate what does the evidence say in this great research and how, how do they use that on a day-to-day -day basis in their work. And uh, so that was really the starting point of that knowledge exchange of, of my role. And then I moved to Scotland, and uh, that was about 18 years ago, to lead a, a centre that was looking, again, at trying to improve the workforce and the, the, uh, ultimately as the workforce as a way through to trying to improve the outcomes and experiences for children 
it became really clear that you can focus on the workforce and they could be amazing and you could create a fabulous service. But if the moment that young person leaves that one service, um, for example, children leaving care, once they leave care, if we sort of drop them off a cliff because there's no support and no care, we, um, we, we've, the investment, if you want to put it this, this way, the investment that we just put into their lives is really limited. It's not going to be sustained. So how do we, so that sort of compelled me to be thinking, how do we think much more widely about the whole system from early childhood through to supporting families, through to, you know, to their, their lives when they grow into adults and how are we supporting them there? So the work that I've, I've led with the Center, uh, Center for Excellence for Children's Care and Protection in Scotland called Celsus has really uh, taken forward that work around improving whole systems of change. And there's been some amazing things going on in Scotland at the moment with the voice of children who have experienced the care system being front and center in the compelling arguments for why children need to be loved and why we need to rethink how our systems are caring for them. So it's really an exciting place to be, but also a very humbling place to be because I've been working for, you know, what's that, almost 30 years. And these are, you know, how could we still not be getting it right for these children when so many people are working so hard to try and do right and so I think for me that that my career has actually sort of followed that formula for success you know from effective interventions with the workforce to effective implementation of systems change to still seeing actually we still don't get there do we unless we've got the enabling context and the sustained political will to keep that change and that improvement in an ongoing way so that children can you know really have a chance in life especially those children who are facing real adversity from day one you know. yeah remarkable work remarkable work if somebody wants to find out a little bit more about your work if somebody's an advocate and trying to encourage policymakers in a specific direction um, how can they get in touch with you go to the website uh, it's inspiringchildrensfutures.org and we would love to hear from you excellent do you have a key takeaway for our audience i always like to ask for one one key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after the uh, they finish listening to today's episode I think it would be to challenge us all to be thinking, what silos do we live in and what reach, how do we reach outside and where do we need to reach outside our silos to partner to be able to make a stronger uh, impact for children? Even those of us who are working really hard to be interdisciplinary and across systems and across countries and across networks. Um, there are always additional places that we need to reach out and grab hands and hold on tight to be able to make that kind of link um, amongst all of us who are needed to be able to make the change for children. Perfect. Jennifer, really, thank you so much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show. I know you're a regular listener as well. I am indeed. It comes through. It comes through on your on your quotations of other other guests. So thank you for, for listening in as always. And to our audience, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alberto. It was a pleasure. Perfect. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to Jennifer Davidson, Executive Director of the Institute for Inspiring Children's Futures at the University of Strathclyde. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave us a review as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. And I look forward to catching up with you next week.